Good morning. My name is Mark Jennings. I'm a uh, member uh, here at South Shore Baptist, and I uh, have the honor of serving as an elder. And uh, this summer, I'm part of the preaching team. Uh, those of you who, if this is your first time uh, with us or the first time in a long time, uh, our pastor, Jeremy Rennie, is on a um, well-deserved and, and much-needed sabbatical for the summer. Turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of John, chapter 8. We're going to be looking today at verses 31 to 47. You'll find that on page 1060 if you're using a pew Bible. We're going to be looking at John chapter 8, verses 31 to 47. Now, before I begin to read the uh, text the Lord has us uh, to look at today, I want us to make sure that we have uh, the appropriate context, the appropriate setting. Uh, those of you who were with us last Sunday, uh, you heard a, a wonderful, powerful message from our brother Kevin as he was uh, walking us through uh, the previous verses. And it probably would actually serve us well to um, remember the context, because it's really going to inform how we understand the passage we have for today. So I'm actually going to start reading with verse 23. So if you want to turn the page over, uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, I'm going to start reading on, with verse 23 as we get into the text for today. But he continued, this is Jesus speaking, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? They asked. Just what I have been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable. And what I have heard from him, I tell to the world. They did not understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, Many put their faith in him. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are ready to kill me, because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you are determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, 
that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I come from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The word of the Lord. The movement of this passage is astounding. It really is amazing when you, when you look at what progresses, when you look at how the, the, the dialogue flows and, and moves. And the reason I wanted us to start with uh, verse 23 was to realize who it is Jesus is talking to. You notice that, I mean, it starts out, he's making all these statements. He's talking about, you know, how he's the one who came to rescue them from their sin and that he comes from the Father. And, and in verse 30, you know, even as he spoke, many put their faith in him, right? Revival is breaking out. I mean, this seems, this seems like what you want to see. You know, he is speaking, and people are like, yes, yes, this is right, this is right. They're, they're moving towards Jesus. And, and then in verse 31, you know, Jesus continues to the Jews who had believed him. This is the group. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Be one thing if we ended right there. That, that would make sense to us. Here is Jesus. He's talking about himself. People are responding. And now, uh, in view of that response, uh, Jesus starts to further teach and, and, and looks to deepen their faith. If it ended right there with that wonderful, powerful saying, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We wouldn't have really a lot of trouble with how this passage flows, with how it moves. But it doesn't end there. Jesus keeps talking with this group, and in, in a matter of moments, just in a matter of a few sentences, Jesus is going to go from, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free, to... You are sons of the devil. You want to kill me. You are liars. You want nothing to do with me. You can't, you are ignorant of God. You do not belong to God. I mean, what? How how do you go from, you know, they are believing, putting their faith in Jesus, and Jesus responding with, and the truth will set you free to, you are sons of the devil. Now, honestly, truthfully, at one level, I have some experience with a rapid progression of an argument like this, where 
you start out with what seems to be an innocent conversation, right? And then all of a sudden, it's just blown way out of proportion. You know, it, it, was, a, it was a discussion that was nice and simple, and then in a matter of a minute, you're like DEFCON 5, you know, with that person. You were talking about fashion. You were just making some sort of statement about fashion. And by the end of the disagreement about fashion, you've insulted that person about their upbringing, about their commitment to the right living of America, and their overall moral decency and claim to be human, right? You've, you've gone that quickly. We've all had those conversations, those arguments. And usually, hopefully, at some point, you, you back off and you say, Whoa, uh, I'm sorry. I, uh, I got a little carried away. You know, it's, I didn't mean to go there. You know, that's, that's just my fault. I really think you're a decent person. Um, I, get, I get that a little bit. I understand how sometimes a conversation can go haywire. But is, is this what is happening here? If, if, if Jesus were, you know, speaking today, if this was, you know, he was publicly speaking and there was a large gathering and the uh, groups of people are starting to come to him and then they, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus starts calling them sons of the devil and liars and murderers and, you know, not belonging to God, you'd almost halfway expect, you know, his press secretary to sort of you know, just kind of step in and say, well, okay, this has been great. Um, thank you guys so much um, for sort of falling. We really need to get to Capernaum. Uh, we have an appointment there. Um, I'll be around to answer some questions. Uh, we're all a little tired. As you can tell, Jesus is a little exhausted. Um, but anyway, thanks, and um, uh, we really hope to see you soon again. Like, you'd expect damage control to have occurred. So what are we to do with this passage? Well, we're left really with two options. One option is to, to consider that Jesus is simply tired, a little bitter, has no patience for those who are sort of young in the faith and as thin-skinned and easily kind of flies off the handle and, and just loses control of the situation. In other words, one option is to see in this moment Jesus being the entire opposite of every other moment of his life. And that's one option. Or another option is to begin to reconsider how we understand who this group he's talking to really is. Now, it really, the, the language that Jesus, is, Jesus uses, you know, you, you don't know God, um, you're liars, you know, you're seeking to kill me, you're sons of the devil, that language itself shouldn't surprise us. We hear that language from Jesus throughout his ministry. You know, he's, he's frequently using you know, that type of, of, of harsh descriptor, but he reserves it for those who do not follow him, those who reject him, you know, his enemies. You know, we've, we've seen that type of language come from Jesus. Uh, it's throughout the Gospels. What strikes as unsettling, right, is the, the group that seems to be receiving it, these Jews who have believed in him. So the other option then we're left with is that maybe this group that is confessing that they want more from Jesus, that they're agreeing with Jesus, maybe they aren't really believers. Despite what they say, maybe they don't truly believe. Now, We've seen this before 
in the Gospel of John. Uh, keep, keep a mark where you're at and turn uh, real quickly to John chapter 2. To John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. John chapter 2, 23 to 25. The Gospel reads, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, Many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Here we have a reference to a fickle faith of of people that are seeming to believe in Jesus because of the, the signs he is doing, yet Jesus knows their heart. Look again in John chapter 6, verse 60. John chapter 6, verse 60. This is, uh, you know, the the conclusion. Jesus has been talking about how he is is the bread of life. And, and, you know, many people were, were following and accepting Jesus. And then as Jesus continues to further talk about what it means to be the bread of life... There's a response. People begin to leave. In verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, verse 61, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who did not believe. So we've seen in the Gospel of John already this reality of of what what ostensibly looks like a faithful response, but when then engaged further with Jesus, a a backing away, a resistance, a uh, denial. What looks to be faith is proven to be unbelief. So this is the passage we have to consider for today. There there is a word here, most certainly for those of you who have never, ever claimed belief in Christ. There is certainly a word in here for you. But the real target of Jesus' words here are for every one of us who have ever confessed that we believe in Christ. Jesus is challenging you and me to investigate the reality of that confession, to ask the question, am I really a Christian? Am I truly saved? Do I authentically follow Christ? Jesus is asking me and you with this text to look at our hearts and to look at our lives and ask the hard question. And here is my prayer. I have, I have, I have two prayers for you today as we go through this passage. The first is, is that the Holy Spirit will affirm, will affirm in you the, the sincerity of your faith. That as, as in the next few moments we go through this process of, of 
you know, making our election sure, of going through this process of investigating our salvation, I pray that the Holy Spirit will affirm in you that you are free indeed. And if, and if that happens this morning, praise God. I also pray that for some of you, I pray for all of us who have confessed Christ as our Savior, that if we are walking in self-deception, that the Holy Spirit will disabuse us of this notion, of this lie, that we are actually believers when we are not. And if that happens, we are now aware of this lie. We are able, we are ready to receive the great salvation of Christ and to repent and become among his household. And if that happens today, there's no shame in that. If that happens today, praise God. Today is the day of your liberation. This is my prayer for each of us who have confessed to believe in Jesus. This is the test. This is the examination that Jesus gives to these Jews who have claimed to believe in him. And he gives us a couple of diagnostic questions, and we're going to look at each of these diagnostic questions. He gives us a a couple of ways that we can begin to do this investigation on the weighty matter of the condition of our soul. He begins in verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. You are really my disciples. Disciple here doesn't refer to sort of a later stage of spiritual maturity. The way disciple is being used here is synonymous with believer, with Christian. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And thus, this is the first diagnostic question we have to ask ourselves. Do I fully believe that Jesus and Jesus alone is my Savior? Do I fully believe, am I all in, that there was nothing in my life that could insulate me from the sin which enslaves? Nothing in my life. Nothing in my life. Do I fully believe that I was 100% coded, bounded, incarcerated to sin and needing Jesus to be my Savior? This was the first question he asks of these Jews who have said they believe. And here is their response. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. And have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Now, these guys aren't historical morons, all right? They're not idiots. They haven't forgotten that a few centuries prior, the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians had, you know, rounded up all the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah and and sent the inhabitants and the citizens, the children of Abraham, off into exile. They haven't forgotten that. And and I'm I'm pretty sure they haven't misremembered the whole Exodus situation, 
right? The, the foundational narrative of Israel was that they were enslaved in Egypt, right? They were Pharaoh's slaves, and God, you know, using Moses, brought them out of slavery, you know, and, and through the wilderness and into the promised land. That it was the, the foundational narrative of how they understood who God was and who they were. I'm, I'm fairly certain this hasn't slipped their mind. Nor do I um, have any doubt that they looked around and saw Romans roaming about and, and realized that they were actually an occupied nation to the power of Rome. So when, when they say, we are sons of Abraham, right? We, we, we've always been free. We've never been a slave to anyone. They know that Jesus is speaking of, uh, you know, of the spiritual state, of a spiritual reality. Remember, we read early on, Jesus just said that without him, you will die in your sins. So they're aware of what Jesus is talking about. What they can't stomach is the idea that their uh, lineage, their ethnicity, their connection to Abraham counts for nothing. You see, the, the way they sort of understood the world, the, the common in the first century Jewish division of the world was people of God, Jewish people, and sinful nations, the Gentiles. Paul even draws upon this uh, in Galatians when he's talking with Peter in Antioch, and he says, you know, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. You know, there was the idea that Gentiles by default, were sinners. For they were born outside of the law. They were born outside of the teaching of the, you know, of the Bible. They had no access to temple. They were automatically sinners. They were pagan. And what these Jews are responding is to Jesus' claim that they need him to save them from their sins. And, and, and they can't fathom no, no, they might need you to rescue them from their sins, but we are the holy people. We are the people of Abraham. We're not sinners. We, we are insulated from this. We have never been enslaved to sin because of who our family line is and what people we belong to. They are failing to respond to the diagnostic test of do you need Jesus to be your savior? Do you believe you are full sinners? Now, this, this idea of, of being insulated from sins right, is not a, it's not a unique reality to this people. We do it. We do it all the time. We have, if we're honest, somewhere in our um, patriotic conceptions, the idea that we are a little bit, by nature of being American, because we're born in the West, we are somehow, well, if not closer to holiness, we're certainly not as far away as the pagan nations. We have this idea. We we grab hold and we say, you know what, we, we, in general, as a people, are monotheistic or accepting of monotheism. We don't have, uh, you know, rapid, you know, polytheistic groups running rampant. We, we don't have a, a large practice of the worship of idols. 
So we can look at other nations and, 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 we, can, and we can say, you know what? We're not as bad. Right? We, we have this idea. Or maybe we localize it. We, we look at and say, you know what? I may not be a great person, but I was raised well. I know right from wrong. You know, I was raised to, you know, respect, you know, my elders. I was raised to love. I was raised to, you know, to give, to, to speak well, to say please, to say thank you. Because of my family upbringing, I may not be perfect, but I'm not all bad, right? Be, My my spouse helps to correct me even, you know. I mean, we've got, you know, we've got good things around us. We do this, right? We we tend to sort of look at, see, layers of insulation from sin. That somehow we are in less need of Jesus as other people are. There was a billboard I just saw on the way to, uh, I I was on a church on the way to, to our church for this Sunday. And, and it said something to the effect of, uh, don't judge others just because their sins are different than yours. Right? It was interesting. You know, I thought, I said, man, this, I mean, I'm not a church billboard kind of guy, but those kind of like that one. You know, there was something that stuck with me on that one. And, you know, and I was thinking about this, and how does this play out for us as, as, as believers? How, how does this look like? And I, and I remember a conversation I was having uh, years ago when I was working in property management. And I was talking with one of my coworkers, and I was talking to sharing the gospel with him, and he just could not, could not get his mind around the fact that the the guy sitting in prison, who had committed, you know, atrocities, horrible crimes, was somehow the same as 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 the you know sweet little nine year old girl who is in a good home. That both of them somehow in terms of sin were the same. He said, this just doesn't seem right. The, the sins have to count for something. The morality must count for something. And we do this. We look at sins, the, the, the actual behavioral outpouring of the sin that is ruling in our lives and that is enslaving us, we look at the sins and we, we make sort of a gradient scale of holiness and of value and of worth. And there's almost an idea that Jesus had to do sort of a greater work in one situation than in another. We're about to have a, one of the greatest services we do as a church, a baptismal testimony service. I love it. You guys have been those. They're incredible just to hear, you know, people about and talking about what the Lord, you know, has done and has rescued them and has, you know, saved them from their sin and has saved them from his wrath and has brought them into new life. And they're incredible. But, you know, one of the things that where this, this sort of gradient of sinning creeps in is how we respond to these testimonies. How often do I say, do you say, that was a powerful testimony? And we're usually referring to the testimony of one who was in the full muck of life. You know, had, had, had done horrible things. You know, had been, you know, had been abusive had, had been, you know, fully into alcoholism, full, you know, into drug abuse, had been, you know, involved in, in just these, you know, societal rejected behaviors. 
And, and we look at what Jesus has brought them out of. And we say, man, that is a powerful testimony. And it is. But I'm, I'm pretty sure many unbelievers hearing that same testimony would look at that person and say, yeah, they're, they're, they're now living a more healthy life. But yet then when you hear the testimony of the one who, from a young age, accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior, who grew up seemingly in a good Christian home, and the, the, the balance of their life has basically looked decent. You know, the type of testimony that the, 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 the non-believer would look at and go, they seem pretty good from the beginning. I don't really understand the whole Jesus thing. We hear those testimonies and we overjoy, we're glad, but yet somehow our response is a little bit diminished from the powerful testimony. It's because we are looking at sins and the physical you know, expression of sins, not fully appreciating that both were equally, fully enslaved by sin. That each one required the full measure of Christ's death in order to be rescued. One didn't require more blood. One didn't require more death. The full measure of Christ's death was necessary because they were equally under the enslaving power of sin. They are both powerful testimonies. We do this. And, 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 so, and Jesus challenges us. He challenges us to, to, and he asks us, do you really, truly believe that you are not insulated at all from the enslaving power of sin. That you need the full blood and death of him. That's the first diagnostic question that we examine our, our, our heart on. Do I really believe this? That I bring nothing to the table. That I offer nothing to the process of my salvation. The, the second diagnostic test builds from here. Let's pick up the conversation here in verse 34. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know you're Abraham's descendants, yet you're ready to kill me. Because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence. And you do what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you're determined to kill me. A man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the things your own father does. And here we come into the second diagnostic. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. The second question. The first was, do you really believe Jesus is Savior? The second question is, do you really believe? Do you really believe that Jesus is 
Lord, that he is God, that he comes from the Father? Do you love him as Lord? See, this was the second test put forth to these Jews. These Jews who had, who had said they wanted to follow Jesus. And, and he's challenged them on their understanding of the human condition of sin and the necessity of his death. And now he is challenging them on who they think he is. Do they affirm that he speaks for God? Do they affirm that he is Lord? And, and notice their response. They're beginning to put a degree of separation between Jesus and their own conception of God. They're beginning to adjust how they see Jesus in relationship to how they understand God. They, they, they do not want them to, to be synonymous. There needs to be some sort of buffer. Even, even the response, right, we are not illegitimate children, is interesting. There's different ways to take that. I can't help but think that they're not already poking against resisting Jesus and, and, and making mention of the own scandal that surrounded Jesus' birth. You know, there, there was, there's almost a sense, right, you know, because Jesus, you know, was, had a very re- relatively interesting birth, wouldn't, wouldn't you say? You know, there was a bit of scandal, you know, that would have surrounded uh, you know, Mary's pregnant, and it's not Joseph's yet, and Mary, you know, that would have been an interesting bit to deal with. And you can't, I can't help but think that these, these, these people are saying to Jesus, how dare you lecture us about, you know, fatherhood issues? You know, what right do you have? But then they come back, and they're like, we have God. We have God as our father. The irony, of course, is just rich, right? Here is Jesus, God the Son, right? And he's talking with a group that says, hey, who, what, what right do you have to speak to us? God's our Father. I mean, if they only knew who they were talking to. But they're trying to separate what Jesus has just said. You know, talking, you know, Jesus is continually talking about, we read it the very context of how he has come, you know, because of sins, that he has come to save his people from their sins, that he has come from above, that he has come from, from God. And they, they are wanting to put a buffer in between what Jesus says and their own conception of God. See, in their own conception of God, being a part of Abraham's people is still, you know, useful and important for, you know, salvation, for, for, you know, being in God's household. And their conception of God doesn't fit with some of the things that Jesus is saying. So this diagnostic question that, that you and I have to look at is, is, do we truly love and believe Jesus as Lord? Or, or do, we, do we rail against it? Do we find some of Jesus' teaching so hard that we dismiss it and want nothing to do that? Do we reconstruct Jesus' teachings to fit our conception of God? It's so tempting to do this. Jesus says some very hard things. Jesus, more than anyone in the Bible, speaks of hell. 
Jesus, more than anyone, talks about how the vast majority of humanity from throughout the ages are going to be, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth under forever the wrath of God. That's hard teaching. That's uncomfortable teaching. And it becomes very, very tempting to sort of reconstruct, separate, or or dismiss, because that doesn't seem to fit our conception of God as love. I remember when I was um, just beginning some graduate studies at the University of South Carolina, and I had to take um, a philosophy of religion course. There was... There were, there, there were two philosophies that I was exposed to that, were, that just tickled my ears, that just seemed to solve all the problems of this hard teaching. One was a philosophy of religion called perennialism. This was the idea that God revealed himself in distinctly different ways to distinctly different groups at distinctly different times in history. So God revealed himself Uh, in Christianity in a certain way. He revealed himself in Judaism in a certain way. He revealed himself in Islam in a certain way. He revealed himself in in Hinduism and in Buddhism in a certain way. The great, you know, religions of the world were really, you know, revelations of God, unique revelations of God in a specific way to a specific time to a specific people. And the path to heaven was always through one of those ways. And you had to stay in your lane. You know, you couldn't mix lanes. If you were a Christian, you had to stay in Christianity. You know, if you were in Islam, you stayed. You know, if you were Muslim, you stayed in Islam. And, and man, that felt good to my ears. Because that, that helped me say, you know what, okay, I can kind of you know, go away from this teaching on hell stuff. And it, it, seemed, it seemed right. And it also fed my own arrogance. Because I was like, you know what, I, I know a little bit of the truth. You know, that that you guys are all actually worshiping the same thing. You don't know it. I'm, don't worry. That's okay. But I know it. You know, it tickled my ears. Another uh, philosophy that was so appealing to me was the idea of anonymous Christian. Maybe you've heard of this one. This one's a little more popular. Um, this is the idea that anyone who is saved is saved by Christ. You're saved by Christ. You're not saved by anything else. There aren't multiple revelations. You're saved by Christ. What is necessary is faith. What is not necessary is faith in Christ. The idea of an anonymous Christian was that someone could place their faith in something. they, they, They would submit themselves to something greater. They would fall down in faith to something. And what they didn't realize was that something was false. What they also didn't realize, by actually just having faith in something, they became Christian. They just didn't know it. They were anonymous Christian. You know, I, I don't know, when you get to heaven, if it was like, whoa, really? Who knew? You know, I mean, I, I've never quite understood how that, how that plays out. But it, it tickled my ears. You know, and, and for a season, I really wanted to believe that. But that is a That is not what Jesus teaches. A a disciple of Jesus believes that he is Lord. 
and that what he teaches and says is true, that he comes from God. There are hard teachings. There is hard teaching in the passage that we just look at here. When Jesus says, you know, if if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and and now I'm here. I've not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. This is hard teaching. This is just two groups. Have you noticed? There's no middle group. There's, you know, you're either, you know, of God and, and love Jesus or you're of the devil. This is hard teaching. What do we do in these situations? How does a believer respond? You know, we, we looked at Jesus, you know, saving us from sins. Does that mean we never sin again? No. You know that doesn't mean that. But someone who believes Jesus is their savior, when they sin, they hate it. They hate that they have sinned because they understand what sinning is. They understand what sin did to them, what did to me. And they understand the cost of salvation. The same way when we approach difficult teaching, those who could not pass this diagnostic, right? Those who were not true believers, they have always responded by leaving Jesus, by discarding that aspect that they found discomforting. When I find a teaching that is difficult, my response should be, Lord, this is difficult. But I believe you are, Lord, help me. See the beauty of your truth here. Help me believe it. That's how we respond. If we truly believe that he is Lord. If we truly believe that he is Lord, we will love him. If you are from God, you will love him as Lord. I I love my wife. I love my wife. You know, when, when, I hear, when I hear her voice, it's, it's a melody, right? When, when she holds my hand, it's so peaceful. When, you know, when, when my sons, right, you know, adore her, I rejoice. And when they disrespect her, I come down with righteous anger, you know? I mean, I love my wife. And I will give no quarter to anyone who insults her. You know, I love Jesus. I, 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 I love when his name is proclaimed and I grieve when his name is insulted. But loving Jesus is not the same as loving your spouse. You love Jesus as Lord. As Lord, the love is different. It's a love that fully confesses you are truth. I want to do what you say. I want to do what you do. If Jesus were to come here in our presence and and, and return this day, let it be today. If he was to return this day, you would fall down on your knees in adoration. You love him as Lord. You don't love him simply because he saved you. It's not a quid pro quo. Since you saved me, I will love you. You love him because he is Lord. And you love that he is Lord. 
You're not obliged. You love that he is Lord. So these are the, the two diagnostics that Jesus put in front of these Jews who had said they believe him. These are these two diagnostics that Jesus puts in front of us. Are we truly a follower of Christ? How can I know such weighty things as the situation and the condition of my own soul? I want to bring us back to the verse we started with. If you hold to my teaching... You are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How do you know? Are you free? Do you feel free? Jesus is the truth. He is the truth. He has come to set you free. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. I ask you, are you free? Do you sense that you are free from sin? Do you sense that, you know, that you are no longer under the reign of sin? You may sin, yes, but you know you are free from it. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. There is nothing that holds reign over you if the Son sets you free. If He sets you free, you're free indeed. Do you sense that you are free from sin? Do you know in the sinews of your soul that, yes, I have been freed from sin? I was full enslaved. I, was, I bought into the lie. I bought into the lie that I wasn't a sinner. That's the great lie of sin. I bought into that lie, and I know I am now free from it that nothing will ever enslave me again. I am free at last. Do you believe you are free from sin? Do you believe that you are free to live the greatest life you could ever live? Do you believe that you are free to live the life you want to live in your heart? Do you believe that you are free to exist in the most wondrous state of existence for the rest of eternity? In other words, do you believe you are free to serve Christ? Do you believe you are free to do that? Ask these hard questions of your heart. Because if the Son sets you free, you are free Indeed. So how do you know? How do I know? Perhaps it's this easy and this tough. What is in my heart when I say the words, my Jesus, my Savior, my Lord?